Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Co-Creating with AI. I'm Martin, and with me today, as always, is Rasmus. How are you today, Rasmus? Good. Had a had a nice day, focus, and now I'm in the new podcast room at uh, the co-working space where I'm at. How are you? Awesome. We're in really good. It's a sort of a gray autumn day, but I'm I'm uh, hyper focused at work indoors, so that's that's always good. And uh, we're recording this in the afternoon. It's starting to get dark in the in the afternoons here in Sweden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like four <laughs> o'clock. It's probably dark outside now. Yes. And um, uh, today we're going to talk about how to um, allow generated AI to be more stable and robust and not hallucinate and so on, how to use your data to best generate good result out of your AI. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting topic and there's so many different techniques running around, right? So uh, maybe we can tie it to like real world use case that we've tried or that we've, uh, that we've seen. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think just to add on to like the frame of today's talk, where I'm curious at least is, Okay, so we have these smart models, right? And if you ask it to produce something for you, it will be, you know, not really using knowledge in a sense, right? It will just do next word prediction based on all the data it's trained on. It will, you know, likely hallucinate. And that's where the tasks where people have found it to be very useful. But it will be quite you know, generic. So I think something that's come up for me a lot talking with, the, you know, our pilot customers who are mainly like marketing brand content agencies, uh, a few bigger ones, and, uh, and you know, in-house marketing teams that want to kind of use AI in a more systematic way to, mm. you know, produce content and run their workflows. And one thing that does come up again and again now is how to produce higher relevance. Mm. And the relevance is, of course, based on some type of content, some type of input data, and I'll give examples, but, and then also context. So something that's, you know, proven quite valuable for our initial customers is to say, have some kind of input data, some research, uh, it could be, uh, you know, some previous blog posts of a client, and then mm -hmm. some context, which is a brand voice, could be a file, uh, could be something they generate inside of Multiply based on you know previous content that the client has produced, and then use that context to then write relevant content based on the previous content, like new new blog posts based on the previous ones, but also in the style of this brand voice, so mm. it's consistent with you know a good output. And this has been quite an interesting thing where we've discovered that uh, using like if, if you don't differentiate between these two, like what is content to be used as a basis for generation and what is context, which is kind of like, um, I don't want to generate content based on the brand voice, but I wanted to follow the brand voice. Uh, and so that's the distinction we're using internally, at least. Mm. We've seen that you need to be like quite specific, especially when handling big amounts of data and, and compressing it like we do when it's kind of outside of the context window of, of the AI models that uh, we use uh, inside of Multiply. Um, yeah. So I don't know, I, I could dive deeper in there, but like it's, it, that distinction has really been something like that's been a major realization for us and actually has um, made us do some rework of how we handle 
you know, big amounts of data. When the client, mm. you know, puts in like a lot of data uh, that they want to use either content or context, uh, or especially in combination, some data as content and some as context. Uh, but it seems to be working well, but that distinction has been like really, really like important yeah. for us to sort of dive into to get like valuable workflows uh, with the relevant output. And another another example of when uh, the AI happens to uh, confuse different different parts of the context uh, that I sometimes run into is uh, because another part of the context window is the instructions that you give. And uh, so in your example, what I hear is that you're talking about an example where you say, use the, these facts, the content to, and, and with this brand voice as an example to generate the blog post. It's sort of a, a way to follow, and you expect AI to follow instructions and not get confused. And sometimes what I do is that I, I ask the AI, improve on these instructions for how to write the blog post. And then, and like, if you don't phrase it right and very clear about what you want, it starts following the instructions that you're asking it to improve instead of improving on them. So that's also like, it, and then you have to tweak it a bit just to just how you lay it out in the context window in order to for it to understand properly. And it just it's, these are just examples of how uh, fuzzy it can be to talk to an LLM and to, to generative AI and how difficult it actually is to big to build production um, um, like quality based on LLM because they are sort of chaotic based on input. Yeah, and it's interesting that actually what you said is is quite close to like how we've solved it now in Multiply, which is that you can't provide any data to the AI without very clearly specifying what it is and also an instruction of how it's to be used. Mm. Uh, so for example, if I link some previous blog posts, we need to specify that these previous blog posts are to be used as content. You know, We want to uh, produce something that is a good follow-up to these blog posts. Uh, mm. And also, this is my idea for the next blog post, or maybe we generate the idea for them. Mm. Uh, and this brand voice that is linked uh, is to be used as a context in the sense that please write in the style of this brand voice. Mm. And when you have these like co complex multi-layer workflows, which we you know tend to build for our clients, you know, because that's where we really add value on top of like in, uh, differential value to like ChatGPT, uh, is that you know if if that is not like very clearly set up, you can't have reliable workflows uh, because you'll get something like you know that looks like it's going to be good or that looks relevant or that uh, you know looks like high quality, but when you look into it, it's not. Uh, mm. So it's, um, and especially when you start handling like bigger amounts of data, then you really need to be careful when you compress it that, for example, if you have a huge brand voice from a client then uh, that you have a file for, then you can't compress it in a way that destroys the style of the brand voice because yeah. then it's no longer a brand voice, which mm. is what tends to happen. For example, if you just write a summary, you know, if you just summarize it, it won't necessarily be a summary that captures the style of the brand voice. So it's, no. um, it's, uh, yeah, that's at least our insight right now. That you know, it, unless you're really clear to the AI about how to use and like each each data point that it gets or each each source, then it's going to use it in the wrong way uh, because mm. it, it sort of defaults to using everything as content almost. 
because that's what it's doing. It takes a blob of words and then it tries to predict the next next word. So mm. that that's kind of what this we we're discovering. Um, does that relate to like what you're what you're like uh, seeing as well? Yeah, um, and and it also reminds me of this. Um, um, distinction we talked about way back, maybe 10 episodes ago, uh, uh, about what is fine-tuning versus what is context management. And uh, that um, in the scenario you describe, uh, it, it's also very clear to me that what you could, uh, what you could do is to fine-tune uh, if, you, if you don't need GPT-4. Which of course you often do, but if you can if you can work with an AI that you can fine tune, which is GPT three point five or one of the Llama LLMs and or so on the open source from the open source world, then you can fine tune it for style, and then uh, uh, then fill the context window with with the facts it should base the blog post on. So, and it's very clear that the opposite wouldn't work like fine-tuning it for facts and then and then filling the context with the style is much less of a, of a of a good match because fine-tuning is all about uh, how do I write something and it it's less about what exactly do I write and fine-tuning for storing facts is a lousy method of, of storing those it becomes very fuzzy but um, um, there are also like a really new, um, interesting product or project coming out of uh, Berkeley, which is called an MGPT, which is uh, an a version of uh, of RAG, like uh, retrieval augmented generation, where you instead of of uh, feeding the AI, you allow the AI to actually pull data in. So to basically, when AI wants to reason about something, it can make a plan saying that I want to retrieve. These these pieces of content from my memory, and then later it can actually also uh, store. It can reason in the in its plan of execution. I want to store these other parts that mm-hmm. I have now generated, and uh, I think that's it's very early research. It just like all the agent system that that are um, running around and being very. It's very easy to like run them five times and get a nice demo one of the times that you can record and put on Twitter. And it's very, very difficult to get them to, to produce consistent quality. And I think it, it's for, for, for a while now, it will probably be the same with lots of these advanced memory techniques that it's difficult to get consistent results. That's actually pretty interesting to me. So the way I understand that is, and, and why fine tuning on style works is because if you just have enough data in the correct style to fine tune it on say shakespeare's collected works then mm-hmm. probabilistically which is like how it generates output right it's gonna it's it's gonna be trained on that style and that's how it's uh, like how it will match but training it on facts then you still have kind of a probabilistic situation where it you know might use that those that knowledge that it's trained on in a correct way or in a, a hallucinatory way right yeah yeah uh, and and that sort of pulls me to that currently the only way to get like relevant is what i call it output mm-hmm. uh, factual you might say 
is to provide very clearly the data which are which is the knowledge and the facts mm-hmm. and the experiment that you or the research project that you mentioned that's basically saying hey can we also remove the human from the loop there so mm-hmm. that instead of me having to pick the data that i feed in uh, we can actually just give it access to all of the data and then mm-hmm. uh, allow it to pick uh, whatever it wants from there but it's picking from the knowledge base, so to say, from the facts. Is that like the way they use it? Is that like yeah. to understand it? Yeah. Yeah. And and it is sort of, uh, it's like the original Bing, uh, which is uh, retrieving facts from its big web index to use for, uh, for replying. And it's a bit like, uh, I think Perplexity AI does the same with their co-pilot, where you can, if you enable co-pilot when you ask it things, it will both use the files that you upload. You can upload PDFs or text files, and it will also go uh, look on the web for relevant uh, text on the web. And uh, you can also set it to a context. If you say that this is, I'm going to ask about academic research now, then it will only search for academic papers. But but it's a very powerful way of, of allowing the AI to construct this, its own context to respond to a query. Yeah, and I mean, so that's like outsourcing kind of finding the data mm-hmm. and then deciding what parts of that data is relevant to the task at hand, right? But then mm-hmm. there's also the the point that uh, at least what we're working towards is, you know, and what I know, like a bunch of the kind of no code tools out there when you can train your own chatbot, et cetera, is you provide the data, you provide, yeah. say, the documentation for your customer service bot that's or for all these niche co-pilots that are, you know, uh, have have this specific knowledge um mm. and then it can search within that right mm. in order to answer the questions so as long as the data set is good then uh for for performing for performing the task at hand as long as the knowledge is there then then the ai can do that uh, but yeah. it's interesting like have you got a sense because from some of these like open source projects i'm not sure if langchain did it but i think at least like auto gpt and and baby AGI did it is they removed kind of uh, vector databases as the default thing because mm. they thought that it wasn't necessary. I think we touched upon this before, but like, do you know enough about that like to relate it to what we're talking about now? I think um, it, it depends on how much data you have if and the, the nature of that data. Uh, vector database is great if you have lots and lots of unstructured text that you need to retrieve from. Then often a vector database with semantic search can be the only way to retrieve it. But what the, um, the, the um, yeah, like like AutoGPT and the and the agent systems, they often are not dealing with that much content. They are dealing with more like um, maybe. They start with the, allowing the AI to just write one file, or they upload a few PDFs, and at, mm. at the, that point, you can you can easily just go through them. And I don't know if that's what they're doing, but uh, that that's um, um, and you can store text files and just bring the the entire text file up into context when it's needed again. Yeah, it's interesting, and I wonder, like, if we project this a bit like out, where do you think like? this will be in a year or two. Do you know what I mean? If we just project it out and we're, let's let's think about the situation where it's about a lot of data, yeah. right? Let's just imagine that because I think if it fits within the context window, it's just a matter of serving that data to the AI in mm. a good way. 
but whereas when you have, whether it's structure or unstructured data, when you have a lot of data uh, and you want the AI to kind of be able to perform whatever task you have at hand, analysis or research or, uh, you know, content creation, uh, then based on that data, then, uh, and, and we'd take this like a little bit further, where do you think this will go? First of all, I I think it's a pretty safe bet to to uh, say that uh, the next version of ChatGPT will actually have some kind of vector database uh, in the uh, in the on the back end for the user to store documents. It's uh, it's starting to be the uniqueness that other uh, chatbots and AI generative AI services that is uh, multimodal or text based that the the edge they have on ChatGPT is that. OpenAI's uh, chat interface is so uh, it's so mindful. It's so in the moment. Doesn't have a memory at all. Hmm. But um, and 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 the the data is right there. Like you have the big chat history. It, it, it just with a flip of a switch, you could allow it to to uh, like retrieve whatever is relevant from your earlier conversations. So it makes so much sense that you would add that and in. Not in two years, but in a few months, I would guess. Um, but looking further out, um, what I feel is uh, the the natural way to go is to have um, part of the the context is needs to be managed by the human, especially the instructions, and these are the facts and so on to to based on. But that but that the the part of the context window that is managed by any kind of automation, be it like a web query or or the AI itself and so on, that's going to be more and more refined. There, there are two additional facts that we have to take into consideration. Like there are, there's the, the research going on on expanding context windows, and we have these like Claude 2 with 100K tokens context windows and that's that's also part of maybe part of the solution maybe not because the precision is is worse and the, the actually data computation like the the compute you need to throw in is accelerating like exponentially because when you have a context window it it needs to measure uh, the attention mechanism in the transformer it needs to measure every part of the of the context against all other parts. So mm. inside the comp- like on the back end inside the AI computation uh, what happens is that the co- the context window is actually squared. If you provide a long context window, it's also as high. If it's 100k tokens long, it's also 100k tokens high and all of that needs to compute be computed like all the correlations within it. So that's that's one fact the other one like factor playing in is that hallucinations are not always unwanted if we if we ask the the ai uh, can you come up with suggestions for a domain name for my startup you actually want it to be hallucinating it like hallucinating is a very negatively loaded word but generative ai like generative is the the neutral word word for, for for the same thing basically and we want some things to be generated from facts and some things to be actually made up in the moment if you want new new domain names or if you want just like write a poem about uh, this situation i want to give my daughter a birthday poem 
um, about how she is doing well in school or something. Then you want them, the AI to be super creative. And there, I think we are also seeing development in terms of just how do we prompt the AI and how perhaps do we fine-tune LLMs in order to understand uh, prompts differently. So what we talked about with before, about fine-tuning tuning an AI to to style and then feed it with content, we could also fine-tune it to instructions to understand the difference. Mm. So basically looking ahead, we, like, the thesis is, if I'm going to understand you correctly, is, like, we're not going to be able to move the human completely out of the loop for a long time uh, because we still need you know, the intent, right? We talked about these paradigms of UI, right? We are in the intent-based paradigm and we need to provide the intent and the intent is best described right now, at least in in words, right? An instruction Mm -hmm. prompt, as it's called. And without clearly instructing these models, like you're not going to get the result you want. And that could, of course, be if, if you have a very specific purpose that you like a very specific instruction that you fine tune it on, you know, mm. that's that's one way to do it. Um, or a set of instructions or a set of understanding instructions, which, which can then, you know, of course, create um, ease of use in a UI because you mm. don't have to put that burden on the user. Um, but then also with these, uh, and, and with that, you know, what, what is the kind of output I want? Is it creative, generative, or is it factual? Right, yeah. and and this we're already seeing in some of the no code tools. Um, mm. But then, with regards to memory and data, uh, it will also probably be a combination of kind of like I'm providing the information that I believe or know to be relevant, and then I can also that the AI can complement that by you know say semantically searching a large amount of unstructured documents that we have in in the company. And finding what is uh, relevant, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's 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 pretty nice to see that it almost seems like there's not like that much innovation needed, like leaps to go, like to make these models vastly more useful. It's more like engineering now and product. Yeah, uh, like it, it's it's so funny how like transformers, like just throwing compute and data on the transformer model was the leap that might be enough for you know um for us to get so far right some even mm-hmm. think that we might get to you know the agi and that things but uh, just because we've mimicked the neural net right and mm-hmm. and if we just feed it more knowledge then we're going to get there but um mm, so have you seen any like any any and is there anything that has come up other than this, any products or anything that have like really piqued your eye in, in like uh, this path forward towards, I guess, um, much more useful, like the next level of usefulness of these models. Is there anything that you've been looking at? Yes. So there's there's one more challenge which is approaching, which is um, um, also a lot of research and development going into, which is that when these AIs are going to become mainstream, it means that you can no longer sort of trust the human part of the context. The human input 
can no longer be trusted if you turn it over to to public use if you if you allow public use of an AILM then instruction following like really highly resilient and robust instruction following is needed and like very strong guardrails because you can, you could have users with malicious intent that want to make fun of or or actually like jailbreak the AI to tell them business secrets like what what is your prompt or what what our algorithms are running inside you and it can could both be it turns out like carefully constructed instructions that AI that sorry that the user gives the AI so when the AI asks like how can I help you um, in if you have a government service the, instead of asking a question the user might like have constructed a big prompt that is made to ex- extract or like turn over the the AI into different mode than that was what was intended another thing that turns out to be also a vulnerability is that if there are mechanical jailbreaks that so for example with chat uh, gpt if you feed uh, um, gpt 3.5 1000 letter a's what comes back will be a complete hallucination which is kind of, is completely random as if it's like reset into like in in like just working from some primordial soup inside its brain and and so people are having fun with this but there's also really serious research on and like that even like it's unknown actually because you can't it's impossible to try an infinite amount of of inputs it's unknown if there is a like a findable like mechanical jailbreak for a certain llm that we just haven't found yet Mm. and until you've found it you need to instead have a very uh you you need to have guardrails which is like an um a standard classical algorithm that first inspects the user input to say to see is this um a valid user input is it reasonable for our use case and which will reject like a thousand a's coming in a row yeah i mean that's interesting i just think that feeds back to like the topic of this podcast which is like at least in my mind if you train a model on some kind of data theoretically that data could be output you know the the ai could output that so the only way to you know for that not to happen is to not have that data in the model yeah and yeah. for that data not to be available mm. to a model used by someone who shouldn't so it comes back a lot i think and we've we've talked with clients about this as well and we uh it's kind of like how can we feel safe putting mm. confidential data into these models mm. like how can we feel safe and uh, i think like part of my answer to that is as long as it's not in the model no one else can get it right yeah. and as long as it's not the models are not trained on that so in our case for example when we you know feed data into uh, OpenAI uh, via api then they don't train their model on that that's at least the, the guarantee they give publicly and i think we can trust that yeah. uh so so then it again comes back to okay we have all these data right and how do we efficiently get our ai assistant to to utilize that right mm-hmm. uh, so i think that's why like 
I don't know, one frame of this, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but what comes up now is kind of like, we have quite a significant amount of intelligence in say GPT-4 already. Mm-hmm. And these other models are catching up, I think. And I think really this is kind of one of the, one of the biggest potential improvements is, you know, apart from people kind of training, fine tuning their own models and keeping them, you know, locked in the house, mm-hmm. um, how do, you know, companies take advantage of all the innovation on kind of the foundational model layer. And I think a lot of that comes back, comes down to how do I provide my content and context to, to these models without, you know, compromising the integrity or security of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I really like, I'm, I'm, and we've seen so much innovation just during the last, you know, six months and last year with vector databases and everything, right? But it's going to be very, very, very interesting to, I mean, hopefully be part of that as well, like in our mm-hmm. work, but, uh, but also to see kind of the the best practices that emerge for different use cases. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm happy to have explored that a little bit with you today, and and yeah. uh, I'm quite excited to sort of uh, keep digging there. Um, yeah, I think that this is um, this is the bleeding edge edge of ARE research right now. Like, how do we uh, actually use the context window? To, to our maximum because we as as product builders we just leave the build like building foundation models is something not something that I spend time on I don't I just trust that there's a lot of innovation going on but I feel that I have a lot of uh, things to contribute to to uh, how do we use them how do we put them into a, a production use case uh, in a robust and resilient way yeah maybe a good point to end on there um, yes. Yeah, it's been fun. Hopefully, it's been fun to the listener as well when we geek out on on these different mm-hmm. kind of more or less uh, technical and missionary aspects of it. Yes. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, uh, Rasmus, and thank you, reader, for our listeners to stay with us all the way to the end. And as always, get in touch if you want to suggest or ask questions uh, that we can bring up in future episodes. And uh, this has been co-creating with AI. See you next time. See you, Martin.